From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the U.S. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is Episode 5, China and the Middle East. Ever since Barack Obama's presidency, a rhetorical trope has dominated national security discourse in Washington. In order to properly account for China's rise, America needs to rebalance or pivot away from prior obligations that are straining its capacity. These obligations almost always refer to the same issue, America's presence in the Middle East. Ever since the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, the Middle East has dominated America's policy objectives, strategic calculations, and military deployments. Recently, in light of China's increasingly belligerent activities in its near abroad, policy elites in D.C. have used China as a justification for withdrawing militarily from Afghanistan, as well as for diverting its hyper-focus from the broader region. When President Biden announced America's formal departure from Afghanistan just a few months ago, he listed numerous justifications, ranging from Russia to cyber attacks and nuclear proliferation. But at the top of his list was, quote, serious competition with China, unquote. It's a proposition that's worth investigating. Does pulling out from Afghanistan and deprioritizing the Middle East as a strategic region actually increase America's competitiveness vis-a-vis China. But there's another question that deserves far more attention than it's getting in Washington. How does China view America's pullout from Afghanistan? How has Beijing been engaging the Arab states, Iran, and Israel in recent years? And for that matter, how do those states view American disengagement? In short, Does pivoting away from the Middle East strengthen America's hand, or are we leaving an exposed flank for Beijing and others to exploit? To get some answers to these questions, I'm joined by a guest that I'm really excited to talk with today, Alon Berman, the Senior Vice President at the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm excited for this interview for a couple of reasons. Number one, Alon edits not only my work at AFPC, but the work of all the fellows at AFPC. So whenever you see analysis from myself or other AFPC fellows, and you think to yourself, man, those people know what they're talking about. Elon is at least 70% the reason for that impression. Uh, The second reason is that I I really can't think of a better person to speak with about the issue of China and the Middle East, given Elon's background. And even beyond that, this is the first in-person podcast that uh, I personally have recorded on this platform. So Alon, it's really great to actually see you in person and to talk about China and the Middle East. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Michael. And thanks for the kind words. They're uh, wholly undeserved, but appreciated. All right. Well, hey, uh, Alon, let's start this conversation 
with the tectonic shift that happened in the region a few months ago, America's pullout from Afghanistan. It was botched. It was haphazard. But the administration argued that there was a long-term gain, and they used China as a justification for that claim. Many analysts inside the Beltway also subscribe to this broader zero-sum perspective between the Middle East and the Indo-Pacific. You'll hear a lot of folks say, we're going to prioritize China with great power competition, which means we need to divert resources and, frankly, manpower away from the Middle East and away from Central Asia. Do you agree with that line of argument? Partially, I think. Um, and, And here I think it's important to point out that that concept, effectively the concept of a pivot, isn't new. It's something that the Obama administration attempted to accomplish, uh, at least accomplished rhetorically when it was in office. And the idea then, right, the critics of the Obama administration then talked about the fact that President Obama in his November 2011 speech before the Australian parliament talked about what was then known as the Asia Pacific as an area for intense competition and opportunity for the United States and how we should focus more on the region. And it was seen back home in Washington as an attempt to flip the script, to sort of to change the conversation away from a very troublesome region, the Middle East, which was being then convulsed by things like the Arab Spring revolutions and ongoing unrest in Iraq and instability, you know, a conflict with Iran, instability in Syria, the the sort of the list goes on. So back then, a decade ago, the concept was very much changing the conversation. And we did partially in the sense that that we began to focus more on Asia. We didn't really capitalize our Asia pivot. We didn't really allocate the economic resources necessary to comprehensively shift focus. But it was a way, a sort of very effective way to shift the conversation. And here it's important to point out that we've been in strategic retreat from the Middle East for a good decade. And there's lots of reasons for this. One is declining dependence on Middle Eastern energy, uh, middle, the Middle East as a source of energy. Whereas during the Cold War, we came to rely very heavily on the Middle East. And even in the post-Cold War era, we relied heavily on the Middle East. Over the last few years, the shale revolution in the United States has really fundamentally altered our patterns of consumption. And so you see the Middle East declining in importance. So that's one fact. Second factor is the comparative success of U.S. counterterrorism efforts. Lots of things have been said and written about how well the U.S. is doing or how poorly the U.S. is doing in terms of the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. But cumulatively, along a key metric, we've actually done really well. And that key metric was the metric that was laid out immediately after the September 11th attacks, which was that we would go abroad to prevent further attacks on the U.S. homeland. And by that standard, we've done very well, but it's been two decades. And so that focus has receded. The, the phrase is what? Familiarity breeds contempt. And so the better we do at counterterrorism abroad, the less urgent it seems to the American public. And so counterterrorism has sort of receded on the back burner and the Middle East with it. And the third is the third major driver is what you talked about, is, is this shift in focus. The idea that we have to prioritize Asia, and therefore, we can't really focus on the Middle East. And that was really baked into one of the core rationales that the Biden administration had 
for getting out of Afghanistan, right? Intellectual honesty demands here that we say that this wasn't strictly a Biden administration initiative. Uh, this was something that the Trump administration had considered during its time in office, and it would have carried out in the spring of this year if it had secured a second term. So the, the die was cast, uh, the cards were on the table, we were leaving Afghanistan anyway. But one thing that's, that the Biden administration talked about was how our involvement in Afghanistan is effectively preventing us from really doing great power competition with China how the resources that are necessary to maintain an active military presence in Afghanistan were making our counter-China strategy suboptimal. And I think that's at least partially misleading because on the one hand, it's certainly true that an active presence in Afghanistan requires military resources. The back of the envelope calculation is that you need something like four brigades to have an active brigade in Afghanistan. You have one that's active boots on the ground in Afghanistan. You have one that's cycling down. You have one that's resting and recuperating and training. And you have one that's beginning preparations for deployment. So that's a tremendous amount of manpower to maintain an active military presence in Afghanistan. And if you free up those troops, the situation becomes more complicated for the bean counters in Beijing. They have to factor in the fact that there are many more uncommitted US troops that now could theoretically be marshaled to the fight against China in all these different domains, to so the protection of vulnerable allies in the Asia Pacific or what have you. But just because they might doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And this is where I think there's really an intellectual fallacy. President Biden, in talking about Afghanistan, really set up a straw man. He said that we have to get out of Afghanistan in order to fight China properly. And yet we're not. You're not seeing this massive shift in military resources from Afghanistan to the Asia Pacific, or what we now call the Indo-Pacific. So in many ways, unless we really put meat on the bones of that idea, the idea that we need to free up resources to militarily invest more heavily in the Indo-Pacific, it was effectively a straw man. Okay, so picking up on one or two threads that you just mentioned here, a line of reasoning that I've been hearing from the administration over the past few months has been, yes, America's departure from the region is going to leave a vacuum, but China is threatened with terrorism and non-state actors, just as the United States is threatened by terrorism and non-state actors. This is part of the Biden administration's broader philosophy of transnational issues, right? You see this with their climate approach as well, that even nations that are adversarial in some areas can come together on shared threats. I want to ask you, from what you know about the non-state actor threats in the Middle East and Afghanistan specifically that are unique to China, how do you think China responds when they hear the Biden administration saying that? I think the answer is yes, but only in a tactical sense. China certainly would like to play up the idea that there are tactical common interests with regard to counterterrorism, and there are. China, for example, has made no bones about the fact that in post-America Afghanistan, there's lots of investments, there's lots of economic interests, and those economic interests, as they've signaled in their conversations with the Taliban, can only be secured if the country is more or less stable. So in that sense, China and the United States absolutely share an interest in making sure that, the Af uh, that Afghanistan does not again devolve into a safe haven for terrorists. 
But looking at it more broadly, this is a really interesting narrative that the Chinese have tended to play up when it suits them with regard to cooperation with the United States. Here, I, I think there's, a, there's an anecdote that is really appropriate. I've been out to Xinjiang in Western China uh, a couple of times. The first time I went out there was in around 2009, 2010. And I remember being taken out and given a tour of the regional security office in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. And it was fairly elaborate affair, a full floor of an office building with lots of exhibits about five, what they called the five phases of extremism in the province. And, and here they define extremism very broadly. It's uh, anybody who harbors separatist tendencies, anybody who har harbors religious extremist tendencies, and frankly, this sort of third catch-all category that they call splitism, uh, which is mostly anything they don't like. That tour, that exhibit tour, which lasted, frankly, something like two hours, ended up in a room that had two things. First of all, it had a series of displays of weapons ostensibly captured from militants in the province of Xinjiang, which included things like Molotov cocktails and World War II era Mausers, which at that time, candidly, were not the weapons that Al-Qaeda and other extremists were using. But even more evocative was the life-size poster of General Secretary and President Hu Jintao that was hanging on the wall of him exiting the at that time, latest Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. And it was very clear that the message that they were trying to send was, we have a fight, you have a fight, our fight is the same, we should collaborate. And that is a narrative, I think, that the Chinese very much are going to play on in their conversation with the United States as they expand their footprint in Afghanistan, and the U.S. now is on the outside looking in and has to look at uh, Afghan strategic dynamics as an observer rather than as a participant. I think there's a danger there though, in terms of amplifying too much the idea that this is a strategic convergence. For China, there's certainly tactical benefit to talking this talk. But let's remember the Chinese are also, for example, partnering with Iran, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism uh, and hammering out a, a big accord just last summer. So there's a danger here in uncritically absorbing their definition of terrorism and assuming that it's analogous to ours. Okay. So given, given that context, which I think makes a lot of sense, let's zoom out. When China looks at the Middle East as a strategic region, what do they see? Uh, we, we've talked about terrorism already. The United States certainly sees terrorism, but they also view oil uh, and the, our, our reliance with Israel as, as at least the top three equities that we as the United States have there. What does China see as a strategic opportunity in addition to the strategic threats emanating from the Middle East? Well, that's a really interesting question because that calculus, the Chinese calculus about the Middle East has really changed pretty dramatically over the last few years. Traditionally, the Chinese have thought about the Middle East in the context of two things, two primary functions. One is as a market for Chinese arms, and the second is as a source for Chinese energy to feed their expanding economy. And on both fronts, that has at least historically created a fairly predictable pattern of Chinese engagement. But over the last few years, China has really upped its game, if you will, 
and it's expanded its strategic priorities in the Middle East. And now it's pursuing a pretty broad and ambitious agenda, not only of securing the Middle East as an arms market, although it's doing that, or securing energy resources from the Middle East, although it's doing that as well, of essentially shifting the region geopolitically into a strategic order that favors Beijing and disfavors Washington. And China is doing that through a remarkably sophisticated strategy of engaging not only the Sunni Arab states of the Persian Gulf, but also Shiite Iran, and also the Jewish state of Israel, and doing so in political ways through diplomatic missions and, and engagements and, and these sort of uh, diplomatic dialogue on a deeper level than existed before, but also through very large scale strategic investments or investments in infrastructure, investments in high tech in the, con in the uh, case of Israel, in a way that's really shifting the contours of the region in pretty dramatic ways, especially since it's coming against the backdrop of an America that's increasingly disengaged, increasingly pulling out of the region, increasingly signaling that it's not interested in the evolving strategic dynamics of the Middle East. This creates a pretty open playing field for Beijing to advance its interests and to do so in ways that improve its position and diminish ours. You mentioned Iran, uh, you mentioned Israel and, and a, a few other specific cases, and I want to go down the rabbit hole for a few of these here, starting with Iran. Uh, for the United States, uh, the way that we view Iran is contested, complicated, uh, but that Iran, Iran certainly poses threats to our national interests. Uh, this dynamic with China is interesting here uh, because, as you mentioned, this strategic cooperation agreement that they announced, I believe it was in 2020 and has come to fruition a bit more since then, has the potential to upset some of the balances, not just with political, but frankly, economic realities in the region. And China is also looking at Iran at, at, in a ge geographic perspective for the Belt and Road Initiative. Could you unpack those implications, not just what it means for the United States, uh, but even for the Arab states and for Israel? What does a strengthening relationship between Beijing and Tehran mean? What does it look like? Right. So I, I think this is a key dynamic that we're frankly not paying enough attention to. So first, a couple words on the agreement itself. This is an agreement that was formalized, codified by Iranian and Chinese officials in June of 2020, but it was something that had been considered by both sides and vetted by the Iranian parliament, which is known as the modulus, significantly earlier. It had been in the works for a long time. And so we had heard rumblings about this uh, months and months and months in advance. The broad contours of the agreement are that it's this quarter century, $400 billion pact that encompasses everything from telecommunications to infrastructure development. It prioritizes Chinese companies. It gives China preferential access to Iranian ports. It potentially sets up the possibility of Iranian and Chinese naval cooperation. So it's a big deal overall. But here, the timing I think is important to point out. Iran agreed to this deal from a position of weakness. Iran was at that time under significant sanctions as a result of the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign. 
And that campaign, I know the conventional wisdom is that, that maximum pressure is a failure, but if you look empirically at the economic data out of the Islamic Republic, maximum pressure had succeeded in cratering the Iranian national currency, which is known as the rial. It had succeeded in significantly drawing down Iranian foreign exchange reserves. So in an economic sense, at least, the Iranian regime was really hurting. And so what they did, and they've done this in the past in previous cycles of hardship, is they turn to reliable strategic partners. In this particular case, they turn to China. And the agreement is very much this sort of devil's bargain that the Ayatollahs struck with the People's Republic of China, in which China gets a key foothold in the Islamic Republic. It makes Iran a key node along the Belt and Road. But in exchange, Iran gives up at least a measure of its sovereignty. Es essentially, the regime has agreed to diminish sovereignty in exchange for being allowed to stay in business. It was a remarkable admission of weakness on the part of the Iranian Ayatollahs, and it was a remarkable strategic coup for the People's Republic of China, because it really sets up China to engage with Iran in a way that makes Iran instrumental to energy transit flows from the Persian Gulf flowing back to the Chinese mainland. It makes the Islamic Republic a keynote along the Belt and Road, it does all sorts of things that really allow China's larger Belt and Road strategy fall into place, at least as regards the Middle East. Now, here, I think you have to say that nobody who's looking at the Iran-China lash up closely really thinks that this is all going to happen seamlessly, that it's actually going to monetize into anything resembling $400 billion. But you're already seeing, for at least for China, you're already seeing the tactical dividends. For example, as the Biden administration has drifted towards re-engagement with Iran, the Chinese are in a preferential position to accept stepped-up Iranian supplies of crude oil. And Chinese payments for Iranian crude are having this salutary effect on the Iranian economy. They're stabilizing the Iranian economy. They're helping them to rebuild their foreign exchange reserves. And so in this context, at least tactically, one hand is very much washing the other. I want to do a follow-up on Iran here. Given, given those trends, given that context, in the event that Iran develops and fields a nuclear weapon, what difference, if any, would having China as a sponsor, as a patron, have for their strategic standing with a nuclear weapon? Would it be a substantial difference? Would it be an insubstantial difference? How would China's relationship with Iran, with a nuclear weapon, impact the menu of strategic options they would have in the region? So that's a great question. I, I think the Chinese are certainly thinking along those lines already. The thing that I would point to in this regard is that Iran has for years attempted to become an observer nation in the SEO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is the security block that is jointly run by Moscow and Beijing, uh, which involves a number of the Central Asian states, Russia, China, and a growing number of observer nations. And the idea behind the SEO is very much regional counterterrorism policing, but in the conception of the Chinese and in the conception of the Russians, maybe one day when the SEO grows up, it can be a NATO with bombs. So in this context, it's useful to point out that Iran has lobbied for observer status for years. Iran has been rejected 
from the SEO, from observer status of the SEO for years until this year. Until this year where the Chinese rolled back their objections to Iranian membership. The reason that's significant is because it greatly complicates Western strategic options vis-a-vis -vis Iran, because it effectively binds Iran into a collective security pact with China and with Russia, and we're not clear exactly where those commitments end. And so I think if you were to ask the Chinese, I think they would demur and they would not answer the question directly. But I think through their behavior, they're already showing that, at least in their strategic calculus, Iran is most of the way towards a nuclear weapon. Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon. And the partnership sets up cooperation between Tehran and Beijing so that the PRC can benefit from it. What does this mean for Israel? You mentioned Israel a few minutes ago in a really interesting context of a burgeoning and even a strengthening relationship with the PRC. Israel, as, as you know very well, is one of America's closest allies, not just in the region, but in the entire world. How successful has the Biden administration been at persuading the Israelis to limit their cooperation with China when it comes to sensitive technology, number one? Number two, if Iran does get a nuclear weapon and they have this relationship with China, the Israelis are obviously threatened with the nuclear Iran, but they also have a strengthening relationship with China. How does China play in that space? So first things first, the Chinese-Israeli relationship, which is frankly much more complicated, much more nuanced than most people understand. And to understand the Israeli position and how China has entered the Israeli innovation ecosystem and the Israeli economy, you have to understand that Israel has, over the last dozen years or so, build itself globally as a startup nation. There's a famous book by that name by uh, Saul Singer and Dan Sinor. It's a great book, by the way. If you haven't read it, you, you absolutely should read it because it really talks about the secrets of Israel's success, the, the way the Israeli military creates a flat corporate structure that allows for free exchange of ideas, right? It's effectively an attempt to explain the secret sauce that makes Israel this global economic driver. And so for the last dozen years or so, the Israeli government has tried to popularize that image of itself as a startup nation and as a global engine for innovation, especially in, in high tech and defense technology and software, which it is, and the Chinese have noticed. And so what you've seen over the last 10 years or so is this escalating spate of Chinese investments in Israel. And the, the Chinese are investing robustly in virtually every sector of the Israeli economy. But where it becomes potentially problematic is that the lion's share of their focus is on that fast mover, is on the high-tech industry, it's on software, it's on innovation. And a lot of those projects are dual use in the sense that they abut the special relationship that Israel and the United States has to the point where both U.S. elected officials and U.S. military officials have spoken out publicly about the fact that if the Israelis are not more circumspect about allowing China entry into their economy, into their infrastructure, it will have an adverse effect on the uh, relationship between Jerusalem and Washington, at least in strategic terms. And this was actually something that the Trump administration spent a lot of time on. And, and sort of behind the scenes, most people aren't aware 
But the Trump administration, in addition to being very pro-Israel and very much pro-Israeli defense in its foreign policy, was also having quiet conversations with Israeli officials talking about the potential threat posed by compromise with regard to China and how that might adversely affect defense ties, how that might adversely affect economic ties. And the Israelis were responsive because they were getting a tremendous amount of other dividends from partnership with the Trump administration. And so you saw Israel, for example, in November of 2019, set up a analog to the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is an, an interagency body that we have here in the United States that vets foreign investments in the country and matches them up against geopolitical risk and national security risk. The Israelis didn't have anything like that before. And as a result of fervent requests on the part of the Trump administration, they built one. But it's not a it's not exactly an analog. There's a $6 billion carve out for high tech in the Israeli, uh, the Israeli version of the CFIUS, as the acronym is known here. And that dynamic is very much dependent on smooth political sailing between Washington and Jerusalem. So when the Trump administration was in power and there was a tremendous amount of dynamism in the Middle East, with especially with regard to Israel, bilaterally between Washington and Jerusalem, but also regionally in the context of the Trump administration midwifing the Abraham Accords between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and, the, and Bahrain and Morocco and Sudan, the Israelis were inclined to play ball, shall we say. And the worm has really turned in that regard because now you have a new sheriff in town here in Washington. You have a reversion to more traditional approaches to the Middle East, which involve steady bilateral relations between the United States and Israel and the United States and the countries of the Gulf, but also a pretty intensive, and in the view of Israelis, pretty foolhardy approach to re-engage Iran, an attempt to bring Iran back into the confines of the 2015 nuclear deal. We can argue the merits and we can argue the demerits, but generally speaking, the Israeli national security establishment thinks this is a bad idea because it's not a lasting solution to the Iranian nuclear problem. It essentially just kicks the can down the road. And so now you find that the Israelis, who previously used to be inclined to listen and take seriously American concerns about China and Chinese penetration and the ancillary risk involved in Chinese investments, they're less inclined to do so. They're more inclined to conduct business as usual with China. And that's going to be, I think, a huge problem moving forward. That's a potential for renewed tensions between Jerusalem and Washington in the years ahead, especially if the Israelis allow China to expand its economic footprint still further in ways that compromise ongoing projects between the two countries. To your second point, the what are the implications for Israel? This is a little bit of a sort of deviation into Iran strategy, but the Israelis are on the horns of a serious dilemma. For the better part of a decade and a half, they've been trying to convince successive administrations in Washington that all options need to be on the table. So diplomacy with regard to Iran, but also economic sanctions, also a robust military strategy. And it's all driven by two considerations. One is that Iran for Israel is an existential threat. It is a potential threat to the survival of the Jewish state moving forward. And the second is that the Israelis really don't want to be forced to take care of it themselves. And so the Israeli line to the United States has long been, we should have a strategy. What America gets to decide whatever its strategy is, but it should have teeth. All options should be on the table. 
for a long time, baked into US policy has been the notion that if worse comes to worst, if we can't hammer out a nuclear deal with Iran, if we can't come up with a durable solution, if we can't put Iran back in a box, if we can't contain Iran's nuclear ambitions, the Israelis might just solve our problem for us. And so Israel, a small country of roughly 9 million people, is confronting a very large strategic problem currently, which it really doesn't want to solve on its own. And it wants to rely on partner nations to ameliorate. And here, the Israeli relationship with China becomes really important because I think there's a sense, at least among some officials in Jerusalem, that that closeness that has been built between China and Israel allows Israel at least a modicum of influence over Chinese decision-making. And China, after all, has a tremendous amount of leverage over Iran. So maybe, circuitously, China can get the Iranians as a result of Israeli entreaties to stand down or to act more responsibly. Maybe it won't, but I think the Israeli consideration here is, has a lot to do with how much leverage China may be able to exert on Iran as a result of its new deepening relationship. Diversion, but very related to all of this, the Gulf states. You mentioned the Abraham Accords and the impact that uh, that diplomatic bargain had for Israel for the entire region. Let's talk, maybe start with Saudi Arabia, and, and, and then you can go from there. I recall, I think this was back in 2019, when the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was jumping up and down about human rights abuses inside of Saudi Arabia, say, uh, over the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And you had the Trump administration, who was decidedly in favor of maintaining a strong relationship uh, with Riyadh. Now from conversations that, frankly, you and I have had offline on this very topic, it seems that given new changes in the wind in Washington, Saudi Arabia also has increased incentives to double down on diplomatic and economic ties with China. From Saudi Arabia's perspective, from other Gulf states in the region as well, are these dynamics with China similar? Are they different? And where, where does the Biden administration's approach fit into all of that? So I think that's a key piece of it, because the reasons behind China's advance and the reasons why China's advance have been, has been so successful has a lot to do with America's retreat from the region. As we're wont to say here in Washington, all politics are local. And so it's necessary to understand, at least in the case of Saudi Arabia, what the Saudis are trying to do. The crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who is the de facto day-to-day -day ruler of the kingdom, has laid out an ambitious multi-year plan that by the end of this decade, we will see Saudi Arabia pivot away from being a oil-driven economy to being a more diversified economy, to being a more receptive economy in terms of uh, international investment and tourism, and, and essentially diversify to thrive is the watchword of the day. I saw this firsthand when I was in Saudi Arabia in February of 2020, you're seeing a tremendous amount of dynamism with regard to Saudi society, where old traditional rules, rules against women driving, rules against music in restaurants are slowly being pared back. Slowly because it's a fundamentally a conservative society, but things are changing. And one of the most profound changes and something that I tend to work on a lot is the battle of ideas in the Muslim world. 
and how Saudi Arabia, which in the past had had a distinctly unhelpful role in the spread of extreme interpretations of Islam, is beginning to change its tune. It's beginning to talk about a more tolerant approach. Now, this doesn't mean that Saudi Arabia has become part of the solution necessarily, but it's certainly no longer part of the problem. And that's a pretty profound change. And I, I think that's something that the Trump administration was cognizant of and at least factored somewhat into the kid gloves with which it treated the kingdom in response to the Khashoggi killing, which was horrific. But we're not the only game in town. There are other countries that are interested in investing in the kingdom, in being in on the ground floor of this reorientation of the Saudi economy. And China is the most prominent. And so over the last half decade or so, you've seen a tremendous amount of Chinese capital enter the kingdom in the form of loans, in the form of projects, agreed to projects on infrastructure development. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the Chinese are one of, at least economically, one of the key stakeholders of Vision 2030. And that becomes important when you see that U.S. policy is pivoting away from the seven and a half decade old partnership between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. The Biden administration has, since taking office, done a number of things from levying sanctions against Saudi officials, although not the crown prince himself, publicly releasing an intelligence community report talking about royal complicity in the killing of Khashoggi and a number other, of other things where taken in isolation, are entirely appropriate, but taking it in aggregate are seen by the Saudis and by the region as an American broadside, but the Saudis have other options. And so what you see increasingly on the part of the kingdom is a reconception of the partnership with the United States and a diversification where the Saudis are diversifying their allies. The Saudi government recently concluded a military cooperation deal with the Russians which is a decidedly big deal because Saudi Arabia has traditionally been almost overwhelmingly a defense client of the United States. And economically and politically, you see a House of Saud that is shifting its focus and becoming more amenable to Chinese advances. And this existed before. When I was there in February of 2020, I raised the question of Chinese investment. And the answer I heard was from high-ranking Saudi officials was that the American focus on great power competition is not our concern. We're on the sidelines of this competition. We want to have good relations with both. That calculus is constantly being reevaluated, especially in Riyadh, in the context of American disengagement. And my sense is, unfortunately, you're seeing the kingdom tilt more and more away from the United States and towards Beijing. You mentioned wars of ideas in the Muslim world. And this is the note I want to end on. You, Alon, have written a book with that title. You also are the host of your own AFPC podcast, Disinformation Wars, which I would highly commend to anyone listening on this podcast in the post-COVID world that we live in. I mean, let's face it, COVID has a lot of disinformation components to it, but this problem has predated COVID and is just now coming to the forefront. And I think your podcast has highlighted and is highlighting that issue in a really intellectual and educational way. So I want to ask you uh, on a final note for this conversation, how is China playing the disinformation war 
in the Middle East? How are they pushing their narratives into the region? That's a great question. And I think the answer is twofold. They're doing it through engagement and they're doing it through silence. The elephant in the room in this conversation is what's happening to the Uyghur Muslim minority in the west of China, to, uh, in, in the province of Xinjiang. The Trump administration, as one of its final outgoing acts, labeled that clampdown a genocide, correctly in my view. And to its credit, the Biden administration affirmed, after a review, affirmed that decision. And yet, the silence from the Muslim world is deafening. There really isn't any concerted opposition, with very few exceptions, to what China is doing. And more and more Middle Eastern countries, when they're asked about this, tend to talk about it in the context of legitimate Chinese security and counterterrorism interests. And this isn't necessarily intuitive. You would think that the countries of the Middle East would have a vested interest in ensuring the safety and security of their co-religionists in other parts of the world. And yet, what you see is a series of Middle Eastern countries that have taken a backseat or remain totally silent in this conversation. Some of them have even inked letters to the United Nations in support of what China is doing. And I think that's indicative of the corrosive impact of Chinese investments in these countries. This is, I think, a very dangerous lesson that the Chinese are learning, that their investments in foreign nations essentially gives them the latitude to do whatever they want without critical outcry from the international community. This is one of the, I think, more corrosive impacts of what China is doing. It's not specifically a disinformation campaign, but it has the aggregate effect of dampening down media coverage of what's happening in the West of China, of reducing criticism or even critical inspection of what China is doing to its, toward its Muslim minority. And I think that's a huge dynamic. The other dynamic, which I think is deeply significant, is the degree to which China is signaling through its outreach that its investment is more reliable than that of the United States. What you have with regard to China is a very broad spectrum of investment that's being carried out by not really the Chinese government, mostly what the China calls its national champion firms, high-tech firms like Huawei and ZTE and others towards the countries of the Middle East, also towards the countries of Africa. One of the most significant exports that China is carrying out in the Middle East in particular is the export of technology, specifically of, of suppression technology, telecom technology that makes it easier for repressive regimes to be more so. China's national champion ZTE has been involved in Iran, for example, since the Green Movement of the summer of 2009. Since the immediate aftermath, ZTE has been in Iran, helping slow down the pace of the internet, helping establish surveillance on uh, public internet cafes, and a whole series of other measures that makes it easier for the Iranian regime to repress the Iranian opposition. And in various other places, in places like Lebanon, in places like Egypt, throughout Africa, you're seeing the exportation of technologies that have the potential to make those regions less free over time. 
And here it's necessary to talk about what China's doing at home. And Michael, you know that one of my favorite books these days is a book called We Have Been Harmonized by the German journalist Kai Strittmatter. And if you guys haven't read it, you absolutely should. But Strittmatter's book is really remarkable in the sense that it lays out fairly comprehensively what we have come to know as the social credit system in China. The idea that China is constantly evaluating its citizenry based upon political compliance, based upon social conformity, and giving them scores. So Chinese citizens who don't speak out against the CCP, who are model political citizens in the eyes of the party, have high scores, they can rent any apartment they want, they can travel wherever they want, they can carry out any financial transaction within reason that they want. But those that do, those that are political activists, those that post incorrect things on the internet, those that blog about issues that the party deems sensitive, have lower scores. And they're prohibited, in the most extreme cases, they're prohibited from renting apartments, they're prohibited from traveling, they're prohibited from doing a number of things. So by having this system, which is remarkably insidious, you are creating this culture of conformity within China where you trade off free political will in favor of social standing. And it's been enormously effective for the Chinese in terms of how to control their own population. And the most worrying thing that I see in the context of extended Chinese engagement in the Middle East is that the Belt and Road and Chinese investments in the Belt and Road have become a vehicle that bring those technologies from the PRC into the region. And so for governments that are inclined to be more repressive, less amenable to political opposition, more inclined to clamp down on dissent, the Chinese are giving them the tools to do that. And that has enormous consequences in the years ahead in terms of the complexion of the Middle East. China is giving the Middle East the tools to be less free, less pluralistic, less representative over time. And that's something that, frankly, nobody is responding to. This is a really somber note to end on. We started our conversation with the US departure from Afghanistan and the vacuum that Washington left in its wake. And we're ending this conversation with a discussion on China shipping surveillance in a box technology to these capitals throughout the region. And the one word that comes to my mind listening to everything you've said is contested. This region is a front line in US-China great power competition. And it's clear from your comments, Alon, that this deserves a whole lot of attention and it's not nearly as simple as pulling out and redirecting efforts to great power competition way over there. So, hey, I'm really thankful for your time. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.